Uh, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts fortnightly podcast. Anybody who got to the end of the last episode and heard me say we'd be joined this week by Stephen Timms was unwittingly misled because I'm so bored of lockdown, I subconsciously fast-forwarded through a whole month, in fact, in February. He joins us in the next episode, but in this one, we're going to kick off with the government's response to the Taking Action on Climate Change consultation, which confirms the government's intention to keep English summers grey and wet and miserable by enlisting pension schemes into the fight against climate change. Uh, Pensions Minister Guy Opperman suggested he would not be impressed by trustees who were not impressed by his sweeping greenery, but we will take a look and decide for ourselves. Thank you very much. Uh, Then the university superannuation scheme is getting perilously close to the deadline for submitting its new contribution schedule. But, and despite USS Chief Executive Bill Galvin warning an agreement has to be reached quickly if unfavorable conditions are to be avoided, another row has broken out. Almost 4,000 people wrote to the USS trustee to complain about the justification or lack thereof behind the trustee's proposed changes to its valuation methodology. Uh, Betting on academics to solve disputes quickly seems to be about as safe as betting on GameStop at this point, but we'll ask whether USS can still go to the moon or whether it will crash like Challenger into the worst of all worlds. And then finally, with the merger of Aon and Willis Towers Watson slated to happen in June this year, big changes are afoot in the advisory services market. According to one estimate, the rate of change and the sheer number of mergers and acquisitions will, once this one is complete, leave more than 40% of trustees being advised by a very different company to the one that they appointed. But is this a problem? Uh, When Mitchell partner Penny Koga told pensions expert the trend is exacerbating and not solving the cartelization of the actuarial market, for example, but we will ask whether that's a fair assessment or whether there are any gains to be had from the changes. I'm Benjamin Mercer, reporter of pensions experts, and I'm joined today by Tex Harding, director at ITS and chair of the Association of Professional Pensions Trustees, subcommittee on ESG and climate change, and by Stuart O'Brien, partner at SACAS. Thank you both very much for joining me. We will begin then with the government's lengthy response to the taking action on climate change, improving governance and reporting by occupational pension schemes consultation. Uh, I'm just about old enough to remember when an election was fought in the not so distant past as it happens. The Conservative Party at that time told us to vote against a bunch of radical revolutionary left wingers in the Labour Party. But a year makes a great amount of difference, apparently, because Pensions Minister Guy Opperman used the word revolutionary in a good three or four times in the foreword to his consultation response. Uh, while suggesting that comrades who do not necessarily get with the programme may need to have their mindsets changed. But thankfully, there is no threat of them being liquidated as a class. But besides all of that, the consultation response will otherwise be noted for finalising the intent to list pension schemes, enlist pension schemes into the great struggle of our age. So, Stuart, if you want to kick us off on this one, I think your summary was very important when I came to write the piece, not least because I had the task of getting through the whole thing before deadline, and that was very daunting until you sent over your bullet points. So do you want to um, kick us off? What was, do you think is the most important, most substantive change listed in the consultation response? Thanks, Benjamin. Um, I suppose the most substantive thing was probably not in the, the immediate response to the consultation and the draft regulations we had last week, but actually the whole thing. When you take a step back from it, and this is might not be what Guy Opperman had in mind when he was talking about revolutionary, but they're they're quite revolutionary from a legal point of view in that until now, all the regulations about ESG and investment have all been about disclosures. So it's all, all about what trustees have to set out in their statements of investment principles or previously you know, these implementation statements. But it's all described what you have done or what your policies are. These regs are quite different because they're not just about the reporting side of things, i.e. doing a TCFD report at the end of it, but they prescribe certain governance actions that have to be taken. 
So, you know, perhaps get into the detail of specifically what the latest draft regulations require. But just taking a step back from it, this is the first time I think trustees have been told in relation to investments, you must do X. So you must do scenario analysis, you must monitor the following metrics and you must set targets. All of that, I think, is quite new. And against the backdrop of the DWP sort of being at pains last year to say, we're not telling trustees how to invest. None of this tells you how to make your investment decisions. It doesn't, but it it ain't half prescriptive in terms of the, the process that has to be followed in making those investment decisions. So for me, that's the big point with all of this. Thanks. Do you want to, to come on on this one? Is that something you agree with? And, and to the extent that these are a whole suite of new things for trustees to, to get to grips with, are trustees prepared to get to grips with them? Are they Have they got grips of them at the moment, do you think? Yeah, I think I agree with what Stuart says. It's definitely revolutionary in the approach it's it's taking to explicitly setting out what's required of trustees. I think at one point it goes as far as saying delivering protection for members against climate change has become central duty of trustees. And that's the most clear and explicit message that I think you can you could possibly have asked for on the topic. <laughs> As to whether the trustees are prepared for it, it's certainly been something that's been on the agenda for a number of years now. But I think to date, a lot of the focus has been on ensuring compliance from a, a disclosure perspective. You know, have we got the right statement in our SIP? Uh, what should go in the implementation statement? What's the deadline for that? Where do we need to publish it? I think what has been given less attention is what are we actually going to do with those reports as, as a trustee and how is it going to influence the decisions we make in terms of our investment strategy day to day. And I think that is where we're still seeing the, the step change with the bigger schemes going first. Okay. And when it comes to smaller schemes, do they have the resources that they require? Because presumably this will require quite a lot of advice strategic help and planning and the like. Smaller schemes don't have to come in. It's not being obligatory for them to come in at the office, I understand it, that they have some time to get used to it, though they're being encouraged to do so voluntarily. Um, if I stay with you for this this one, text, I mean, do you think small schemes have the help or will get the help that they require to get on board with this? Or is there going to be further changes required to, to help them along? I think they're going to have to at some point. This is definitely being rolled out. And I know that this, the schedule of review is in sort of 2023 before it gets pushed down to, to a lot of the smaller schemes. And it, it might be possible that the form of what they've got to do differs from what, what has been set out so far. But it's coming one way or another. And I think one thing that this, this consultation, again, was very clear on is it acknowledges that there's going to have to be a step change in the level of investment governance, small schemes have at the moment, just the sort of level of detail and granular nature of what they're going to have to get involved in is very different from how a lot of those boards operate today. So absolutely, the whole governance framework is going to have to change. But equally over those those years, I would expect that the products and information, standard templates, all of that kind of thing to be developing as well. So yes, there's going to be a lot to do, but I imagine the industry is going to make that easier to do as well. And Stuart, is that, is that something you agree with? I know you said that we should probably come back to some of the detail of the changes that are proposed. Take us away, by all means. <laughs> yeah, well, there's loads of detail in the uh, several hundred pages of uh, <laughs> consultation and statutory guidance and regulations. And I think that probably goes to the point, really. This does feel like there's a lot to do. I think this phased in approach where the biggest schemes, uh, your five billion plus and your master trusts will go first, complying from October this year 
and then your one billion schemes from October next year. And then, as, as Tag said, the, you know, this stated review, which I find this quite interesting. Originally, they said they were going to review in 2024, but they brought that forward. So they've said they'll review in mid 2023 whether they're going to apply this to smaller schemes. I mean, there is a huge amount to do. And I think this phase in is obviously designed to make the biggest schemes and those with the broadest shoulders bear the brunt of developing product and developing um, sort of industry practices and spending money with consultants and advisors to get compliant with the hope that when your smaller schemes have to do it, it'll become a little bit more standardized and there'll be that sort of trickle down effect so that it will be easier to do. But you know, it is difficult even with that. It's going to be quite scheme specific when you look at things like, you know, your approach to scenario analysis. You've got to do scenario analysis, not just on the asset side, but also if you're a DB scheme on sponsor covenant and on funding. Um, now, that's really new. There aren't many trustees that have done that at all. So even with the biggest schemes going first, there's going to be some real challenges there. And yes, it probably will get easier over time, but I wouldn't underestimate that challenge. And then you've got sort of really minor, what seem like kind of more specific detail points. But on scenario analysis, it's not just, you know, you do it once per, you know, per scheme. If you're a sectionalized scheme, you've got to do scenario analysis potentially for different sections. If you've got DB and DC, you do it for your DB side and your DC. You do it for your DC defaults. And I use that word advisedly in the plural because you may have more than one DC default and you have to do scenario analysis for each substantial default. So and then you've got to decide what type of scenario analysis you're going to do. Is it you know, what scenarios are you going to look at? You know, there's a minimum of two proposed, so one below two degrees, one above, but you can do more than that. And and which below two degrees scenario is this orderly transition or disorderly? There's a lot of thinking to do and it's not just going to be a case of trustees pressing a button or instructing advisors to do it trustees are going to have to improve their own knowledge first in order they can ask their advisors or providers to do what's sensible for their scheme and specific to their scheme so yeah a a lot of work I think. Is the workload partly to do or partly responsible for the change I think I recall seeing to the climate scenario, scenario analysis I believe it was supposed to be every three years now, isn't it, I believe it's supposed to be. Um, It was previously less than that. Is that partly to reflect the amount of work that goes into it, or is there another reason for extending that? Yeah, so they'd originally, in the consultation last year, scenario analysis was proposed annually, and there was quite a lot of consultation feedback that said that's that's quite a big ask. You know, on DB, we only do our valuation of liabilities triennially, so could we not go with that? And they followed that, and I think that's sensible. But there is a... I think what's going to be slightly more difficult is there is this requirement to, although you do it annually, you've got to do it in your first year. So you can't wait. And for schemes that have a year end of December, if you're caught in the first wave, you've got to do your scenario analysis this year before you're in the end of your first scheme year to which the, the requirements apply. Uh, but yeah, it's better than annually. But even once every three years is still shouldn't be underestimated. And you're supposed to review whether to do it more often if circumstances change. And th- there are a lot of decisions to take around that, right? So as a trustee board, you need to know, are you going to go to your investment advisor and ask them to do a sort of downward looking 
scenario analysis. So what's the impact on each of the asset classes I'm holding, plus the impact on guilt and therefore my liabilities? And what does that mean for my covenant? Or do you want, which actually might be more more useful from a what do you do with the report perspective, if you come at it the other way that says, actually, line by line, these are the companies that I'm holding equities in, these are the companies in which I'm holding debt. Uh, and what does it mean that way? You're going to have to use technology to help you if you're doing it the second way. But in terms of what do I do about any of the outputs, that's definitely going to give you a, a lot more more scope for actually engaging and getting change done than just having a report that says the impact is X. Excellent. And Tex, I wonder if you could just round us off on this topic. When in his foreword, uh, the minister said that he, he's still disappointed when he hears the trustees, some trustees say that this is not the biggest challenge facing us. Some mindsets, I think he said, need to be changed. I mean, is, is that a rhetorical flourish? Are there, is there this body of trustees who are sceptical about the need for these sweeping changes that he's aiming at here? Or is it more of a, as I say, a rhetorical flourish just to make it sound nice and dramatic? Uh, do you know what? I can see this one from, from both sides. I think certainly when you're talking about DC, long-term investors, open schemes, climate change has to be front and centre in what you're thinking about. There are certain circumstances, and a lot of this was brought out in the consultation, where, frankly, trustees just have more on their plate to deal with. And that could be real short-term considerations around strength of the sponsor. You know, thinking retailers at the moment, think anyone that's been really severely impacted by COVID, there's a lot that you've got to do there. Anyone that's going through a transaction, you know, all of those things need to be you need to be taking up trustee time. So I, I do see see that one from from both perspectives. Well, um, speaking of trustees who perhaps have a lot on their plate, I think we can move on in that case to tiptoeing through the minefield that is the USS valuation and the row that's erupted, or maybe one should say re-erupted there, uh, about proposed changes to its valuation methodology, specifically a change to the discount rate that critics have said amounts to an unjustified increase in the deficit, necessitating an unwarranted rise in contributions. Some 3,783 people at the time we published our report had signed a letter to the trustee of the scheme, demanding answers to a number of questions, answers which, if not forthcoming or deemed inadequate, would presumably see the scheme revert to the previous methodology. At least that is the hope of the signatories. But USS Chief Executive Bill Galvin has warned that contribution rises will be inevitable and least favourable, of course, uh, unless an agreement can be reached before the deadline. So, Tegs, um, if you want to kick us off with this, um, I don't know if you've had a chance to look through their specific proposals, but if we're speaking more generally, I mean, what would be a sufficient justification for amending discount rates for schemes in positions like that the USS finds itself in? But given the economic times we find ourselves in at the moment, anything which could be seen to increase a scheme deficit and increase the need for contributions would presumably be unpopular. But I'm assuming there are circumstances in which it's necessary. I mean, I don't suppose you can take us through some of those. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the same considerations you'd have when looking at any scheme. The pensions regulator rightly wants you to take into account the strength of the covenant. And that is going to be what really drives your view on how much prudence is needed, how confident you can be that there's a source of funds going into the future if the worst should happen and a downside scenario. That's the weighing up that you do as a trustee when you're looking at every single scheme. It's a tricky one. It's the regulatory environment to a certain extent. It's definitely trustees doing doing their job and taking all those factors into account. Sure. And and to what extent is it the trustee's duty to provide the kind of accounting for their decision making or the justification, the explanation that's being demanded, for example, by USS members? Is it members' right to intervene in this way or a similar way? 
even if it does risk jeopardising their own benefits, which, of course, it is the trustee's duty to uphold. Where does the balance of power really lie here? Does the trustee have the final say? The trustee certainly will have the final say. They, they do have a, a duty, as you say, to, to disclose certain things to your members. And it, it's good practice anyway that all of these decisions that you're making, especially around critical things like level of contributions and level of prudence, that that is, is well documented and, and well understood by everyone anyway. And as I mentioned, Bill Gavin has suggested that the contribution schedule deadline, of course, is imminent and it could be missed. And if it missed, that's not going to be a particularly good thing. I mean, Stuart, do you want to tell us a little bit about the contribution schedule deadline? What are the implications for missing it? I'm assuming that takes a lot of options out of any scheme's hands if they so miss it. Yeah, so the requirement is for any valuation to be completed within 15 months. I think the the dates as applied in USS's case, it's their March 2020 valuation. So they've got until June this year, in theory, to finalise the valuation. Now, you can tell the regulator that you're going to miss the deadline, and that happens not infrequently where you've got employer and trustees at loggerheads on a valuation discussion. So, you know, to the extent they feel they're getting close to the June deadline and that's not going to happen, I would expect there would be some further conversations. But at the moment, it seems like there's quite a long way to go between where they are at the moment, still sort of consult, essentially consulting on the assumptions before they actually get to setting the contribution schedule or, or recovery plan or otherwise, that that June deadline is looming quite large. But it's not impossible to go past that deadline, as lots of schemes do, but um, you need you do need pretty good reasons for doing so. And am I right in thinking, when it comes to setting contributions, the row is at least in part about the, the setting of contributions, but if you do miss that contribution deadline, then you may not have much choice as to where you set them in future. They will go up inevitably, I think, if I'm right about that. Is it the case that even with good reason, if you miss that deadline, contribution rises are inevitable, or is there a little bit of leeway still? providing you have good reason. I think that's right in this case. I'll be honest, I'm not completely inside how the um, how the sort of escalation works in, in the USS, but my understanding is that's what happens in their case, certainly. Very good. Headache for trustees over at USS. I think they're between a rock and a hard place on this one, aren't they? Wouldn't envy their position, I have to say. I think we'll move on from USS in that case. We've got one more topic to discuss this week, and that is, uh, well, there is a merger proposed, and it's due, I believe, to go through in June, I think, between Aon and Willis Towers Watson. Uh, that will further consolidate the advisory markets. Um, and as our colleague Stephanie Hawthorne reported, that has potentially wide ranging and not uniformly positive consequences. Uh, the FCA previously found uh, effectively a cartel, in the words of Ms. Koga, in the actuarial market, for example. And Stuart, do you want to kick us off with this one? Is there a risk maybe that too much consolidation in an advisory market leaves schemes and trustees short of options? Are there benefits? on the other hand, to the efficiency that I might provide. Yeah, I mean, just going going back to the CMA's review, I mean, their concern was sort of twofold, really. They were, they were concerned about sort of lack of competition in the, the advisory space in terms of investment consultancies, but they had a particular concern about fiduciary management and the way that the largest sort of investment consultancies had marketed their fiduciary offering such that trustees were entering into fiduciary management arrangements without any competitive tender process. They sort of slid into them without there being much competition at the time. So the CMA's proposals fell into two camps. They required trustees to up their game on the monitoring of their advisors, their consultant advisors, by setting objectives and putting in an, a requirement for review against those objectives. And then they set a separate requirement for 
tender a mandatory tendering requirement for fiduciary management where that hadn't previously taken place. I, I mean, against those two sort of CMA findings and proposals, the consolidation in the market does look a little bit like it's not quite aligned with uh, where the CMA were coming from in arguing for there to be greater competition. I suppose you have to take the CMA's points for what they were, which is requiring trustees to improve their scrutiny and monitoring of existing advisors and also ensuring competition or competitive tendering in fiduciary management. And I don't think necessarily any consolidation in the advisor market works against either of those. You, you know, you're still required to set objectives review and you might change your mind and you're still required to do a competitive tender process for your fiduciary offering. But it, I suppose it does limit the choice for trustees. And also, as happens with any merger of, of advisors, there's always going to be the scheme that has recently removed one advisor to appoint another one and then find they're back with the original advisor by, by virtue of a merger. Of course, that, that happens and might leave trustees feeling like the whole process wasn't really worthwhile. I think there's another sort of angle with all of this as well is although you've got the sort of consolidation at the larger end, there is still definitely scope for challenges, particularly going back to the topic we were talking about before of ESG and climate. There is definitely going to be a lot of new demands on advisors placed by trustees, and that does create opportunities for other advisors to create a slightly different offering. But the consolidation does does sort of broadly look as though it's working a little bit against what the CMA were concerned about. I spoke to an actuary a little while ago who did something similar, actually left one company for another company, which was then bought out by his previous company and ended up back working for the same place, which I can imagine would be a little bit awkward. Tex, if, if you want to come in on this, uh, you're from a trustee's perspective, of course. I mentioned that there is this 40% figure of, above even 40% of, of trustees now find themselves being advised by a company other or different from the one that they appointed. I think I saw a figure saying the same or a similar number were now considering changing or at least reviewing their choice of actuarial consultant, for example. From your perspective, I mean, the, what, what is the, the state of the market at the moment? Is the range of options available wide enough, broad enough to get the full range of advice that's required? Is there a worry about consolidation? I, I don't have any concerns about it, if I'm honest. And and I think I agree with what Stuart said. I think going forward, rather than a sort of one-stop shop approach that you might have had in previous years, you kind of divide up the role a little bit. So you might have one set of advisors who take more of a governance approach in you know making sure that your SIP is okay and the, the inputs, the report and accounts is there. You might have another advisor that uses a technological approach to help you give that look through on the portfolio that you're going to need on ESG. You know, you might get more manager input directly on, on how you build your hedging strategies. So I think it's, it's evolving, um, but there's definitely you know, the new things that are coming into the market are helping with that. I'm sorry if you can hear my dog in the background. I should have introduced him at the start of the podcast. Excellent. So, I mean, just briefly, I mean, you mentioned the technological changes there as well. And assuming that counterbalances some of the potential downsides of consolidation. And is that something that's widely available? Is the pace of change there sufficient uh, to make up for the fact that perhaps there are fewer overall advisors advising trustees? Is technology already taking up the slack there or is there more work to be done? I'd say that the technology is there. What we haven't seen yet is widespread take up of that by schemes. And, and part of that will be just um, awareness of the solutions that are out there. Part of it will be as the costs come down, more schemes will, will adopt. 
And is that do they have very far to come down costs? Do you think? Not from what I've seen so far. The the examples are you know in in the couple of thousand pound mark, um, which I think is quite quite reasonable for a sort of line by line analysis of of your portfolio. Brilliant. In which case, I think that brings us almost to the close of the program. I think there is just time though for our always a pensions angle. Tegs, did you say you had a a coronavirus angle for us from pensions? Yeah, it, it just sprang to mind because immediately prior to Christmas, I was working with a scheme of an employer that was, was very distressed. It was a, a brewer and uh, ran a chain of pubs. And the coronavirus has had a huge impact on the ability to open those pubs and, and sell beer. So it was just reflecting on we're, we're all in lockdown at the moment, and but that is probably going to have a bigger impact on pension schemes as we move through 2021. One faint and perhaps false consolation of owning a pub is that you do sell your own medicine if you're distressed, but too much of a good thing can be had. Excellent. I think that brings us then to the end of the show. So thank you to Tex and to Stuart very much for joining us. Uh, To the audience, thank you for listening to us. We will see you again in two weeks' time. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.